0: Hello and welcome to the world famous driving you crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things, transportation, anything. that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver seven news, Jason Lubert. If you would always, well, if you would like to be a part of the program, you can always (laughs) call this number 303-832-0217. Two things I want to talk about, uh, in a, in today's show. One, there was an article I read recently about the fallacy that uh, free transit will make everyone drive less. I read this article by David Zipper. He's a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Taubman Center for state and local government. And David conducted detailed research and he wrote a recent Bloomberg article and that he found that free transit actually increases emissions and not decreases emissions. So, I'm going to have that coming up in just a bit. But first, I was presented with this opportunity to speak with Travis Hester who is General Motors' chief electric vehicle officer, and I said, sure, yeah, let's do it. I was pitched the story that GM and Pilot Flying J truck stops are installing all-new electric charging stations across the country. And we know that GM is going all-electric. And what is lacking is the infrastructure to charge all of these vehicles that are coming online, especially on long trips. So to talk more about this... And some of the challenges they're facing is Travis Hester, General Motors Chief Electric Vehicle Officer. Travis, thanks so much for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Great. I know we have very limited time, and I have a ton of questions for you. Uh, so let's roll right into this. How long is this going to take to build out?
1: Under normal circumstances, it can take a little while, but the relationship we've got with uh, you know great partners like Pilot Flying J and EV Go We think we can have charges in the ground early in 23, which is really fast when you consider site location and permitting issues that can often hold up this type of infrastructure.
0: Are these... Chargers going to be just for General Motor cars and trucks, or for everybody? Because right now you have a bank of Tesla chargers that are that work with Teslas. So, are we going to see a bank of just Tesla chargers, and a bank of just GM chargers, and a bank of just Ford chargers?
1: Uh, we're very proud. You know, we we believe in an all electric future for everybody at General Motors, and we're very proud that this network is open to everybody on the CCS network. So, it's not exclusive to General Motors. However. As part of the General Motors Ultium Charge 360 program, there are certain benefits that you will get over and above everybody else uh, if you're part of our network, the GM network. Uh, So things like exclusive reservations, discounts on charging, a really uh, cool uh, technology called Plug and Charge that allows you to seamlessly work on payments without any credit card. So you don't have to worry about that. And then all that gets integrated into a an app that allows you to have real-time charger ability, uh, you know, uh, real-time charger visibility and route planning. So it's it's both open for everybody, but gives some exclusive um, benefits to GM uh, customers. Does that cost anything extra? The part of the Altium, all these things are part of the Ultium Charge 360 network. That's all part of it. So you get that as part of your Ultium um, uh, Charge 360 activity when you buy your car.
0: My guest is Travis Hester, General Motors' Chief Electric Vehicle Officer, and we're talking about how they are partnering with Pilot Flying J Truck Stops to install new electric charging stations across the country. With Tesla superchargers and other chargers, there are there are different rates for the electricity as you're putting it into your car at, for for the different charging speeds. Are you going to have similar feature with your chargers?
1: Uh, so individual um, individual states and utilities. Utilities all have different rates and charges, and we'll be working to put the cheapest amount of uh, energy into a vehicle that we can. You know what's very clear to us from our you know many many interactions is getting energy into the car at the fastest rate possible is the priority of customers who are on the go on a freeway, and that's our primary uh, objective here. And then, but we want to make this as affordable as we can, so we'll be working to have um, the cheapest amount of energy we can get into there. Also.
0: Now, there's only four of these flying J's in Colorado, so this network, as I I can see it from the map behind you, I know our our listeners are not going to be able to see that, but on the map behind you, it has a little dot along every interstate uh, around the country. It's really going to be for people traveling across the country, right, more than people traveling inside a metro area, so when you have slow chargers at some of these locations. And obviously the temperature changes the rates of the charging. Normally when you go to a gas station, it takes what, five, 10 minutes to fill up. It's going to take much longer time to charge a car, especially if you're at a slow charger, right?
1: Well, so a couple of important things you said there that are really, uh, um, really important that our customer base knows. So in a modern EV like a Chevy Silverado EV or a Hummer EV with a 350 kilowatt charger, you can put 150 miles into the car in 10 minutes, which is very significant. It's not a long charge. It's it's more similar to what a gas vehicle can do. So 150 miles in 10 minutes is what people should expect from a 350 kilowatt charger. And sorry to interrupt, but isn't that at perfect
0: optimal temperatures? If it's really cold or really hot, you're going to spend more time charging. Yeah, a little bit,
1: but not not to the degree that it's not to the significance that maybe you mentioned a little bit ago. So with a 350 kilowatt charger, you can get a lot in there, even with some temperature variation. Uh, And the other thing you said, which is really important, and, and it was a great comment, I thought you mentioned about... The objective of this announcement is freeway charging infrastructure on the freeway and the highway system. However, what we've already announced as part of $750 million of prior announcements is an adult, another over 3,000 DC fast chargers within inner cities. We do that with our partners with EVGO and also another 40,000 chargers. These are level two chargers as part of our dealer community program that will be in, you know, the communities that we live and work. So, you know, when you think about overnight charging level two, fast charging in a city, that has been in place and we've been working on that for a couple of years now. The part that was really missing was this freeway infrastructure plan and that's um, what this really addresses in a nice way.
0: My guest for the next few moments is Travis Hester, General Motors' Chief Electric Vehicle Officer. We're talking about their partnership with Pilot Flying J Truck Stops, installing new electric charging stations across the country. Full disclosure here, I've been driving an EV, a Chevy Volt, for the last nine years. I've owned two of them. I'm one of the first EV owners out there, and I'm actually sad that you stopped making them because I I love my Volt. It's great technology. Uh, And I I love that I can have a generator carrying around with me in my car. So I I never have any range anxiety.
1: Yeah, the Volt's a great vehicle. Um, And, you know, when you get to um, move yourself into one of the vehicles that with like 450 miles of range, uh, like the Silverado EV or one of those vehicles, combined with some really um, well-placed infrastructure that can charge fast, I hope you love it just as much.
0: Yeah. So many of these Flying J truck stops are in rural areas. So is that the idea here to spread them out throughout the country so you can have them in these real rural areas? But don't also these rural areas have a difficult time dealing with more electricity use coming off of their small
1: grid? I love this question. Um, It's an important question. Yes, one of our desires is to get EV infrastructure into some of these more rural areas so people can make those cross-country trips. Um, And we have some very sophisticated technology to help us decide where and how many. Um, We have something in the order of 11,000 charging events a day that we're involved with and monitor through our OnStar system. And combined with the EVgo information, that'll allow us to position charging banks in the right place, in the right quantity, to fill up some of those rural areas but also supplement areas where utilization is already a little higher on some of the more busy freeways so um, yeah we'll be very strategic with how we put this together and make sure that we really get this um coast-to-coast capability um to a whole other level
0: how much are you folks willing to spend on all of this infrastructure
1: well so far um, you know we've announced 750 million dollars worth of investment um, we're working very closely with the um IIJA Biden administration um, funding package that's been put in place. We also partner together with EVGO and Pilot Flying J. Our objective is, you know, very long-term focus to get the right infrastructure in the ground to promote, you know, this massive transition to EVs and promote the EV adoption. So, you know, we're not done, we're not finished, um, but this is a really good step in the right direction.
0: I know we have to wrap it up here, so last question. Do you think that pushing EV technology to where we have mandates with needing a certain number of EV cars on the road by a certain time is a problem? Doesn't it? does it seem like the infrastructure isn't quite ready to have that many EVs on the road yet? Are we trying to push too hard with getting EVs out there and the desire and the infrastructure by consumers really isn't isn't high enough yet?
1: You mentioned kind of the answer to this a little minute ago with your vault experience. These are foundationally a fantastic product. And, you know, I was a chief engineer for about 20 years. Almost everything I tried to do comes for free in an EV. It's got, you know, it's very quiet. It's got zero turbo lag. It can shoot a gap. It's got great acceleration. It's more space inside the car. I think when people, you know, and and a lot of people are experiencing this right now, when they get to live and work and be inside a electric vehicle, it's just foundationally a better vehicle. And um, I think we'll see adoption curves continue to increase as more People get exposure to those electric vehicles. They're they're just a fantastic product.
0: Well, I wish I had a lot more time to talk with you, Travis. Travis Hester, General Motors, Chief Electric Vehicle Officer. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks for having me. Okay. That was short, but sweet. (laughs) I beg for more time. But they couldn't give it to me, so that interview was part of an agency pitch to me. And basically what happens is uh, they they book a whole bunch of different stations or, or uh, TV stations or radio stations or whatever across the country, and everybody gets like a 10-minute block. And they were trying to get me a few extra minutes, but that didn't happen. In fact, the guy who was before me ran two minutes late. And I thought I was actually going to have two minutes early. And so instead I only had about eight minutes with Travis instead of the 10 or 12 I was hoping to get. Because I had a ton more questions for him. Like I wanted to ask him about people's major concerns preventing them from making the jump from gas to electric. Now, th- th- that study show that 61% of people are concerned about the charging logistics with buying an EV. Everybody understands how to gas up their car, but they're not quite so sure yet how to charge up an EV. And that was followed up by 55% concerned about the range uh, of your of, of the EVs and 52% uh, with the cost in ma- maintaining an EV. Uh, well, I, and I can tell you this. Uh, At least on my vehicle, uh, it is way less expensive than any other car I've ever owned to maintain, so that's not a problem. Yes, the cars are more expensive to buy, but as far as maintenance goes, that fear, I can calm that down right now. As I said, that that Chevy Volt I have has been nothing but great for maintenance. I just at uh, at 100,000 miles here had a tune-up done, Basically replaced the spark plugs, had an oil change because I hadn't had an oil change in I don't know nine or 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 so months, and so all of that was done. And now my next service I don't think is for another thirty thousand miles. It it really is a remarkable great car, and I think most EVs are um, for uh, l- lower maintenance costs. It really is tremendous. Um, but I wanted Travis to weigh in on all that stuff, and I also wanted him to weigh in on the on the problem. That they say will be only—they uh, say that there's only going to be four to six chargers at all of these locations, and with the average uh, charge time, he said it was pretty short. I—I uh, I think it's going to take longer than what he is is promising, and, and they're going to need more charging stations at these locations to handle the future increase in demand. Because if you only have four or five or six chargers, and and you're going to have a lot more people trying to charge up your car, you're going to have people waiting. It's You already have that at gas stations right now, right? When when it gets busy at a gas station, you have to wait. Well, you're only waiting three, four, five minutes for somebody to fill up. You've been to a Sam's or a Costco to fill up. Well, it's going to be a lot longer of a time for a electric vehicle. And so that's going to be a constant struggle of trying to build out the EV charging infrastructure. And I wanted to explore more about that weather issue because really, weather does zap the battery and the ability to give you long range. Uh, Travis, I'm not going to say he, I'm not going to say he fibbed or anything, but I, I think he he painted a rosy picture with with weather and that it's not as uh, much of a factor as it really is, especially in very cold or very hot uh, temperatures and how much effect it has on the battery. Uh, distance that you'll get and how quickly you will be able to recharge that battery. Um, I, and and it's especially true for a semi-truck where the push to get EV trucks on the road is almost stronger than the push to get passenger vehicles on the road. And that is going to be a challenge to try to get those things to charge in uh, a short amount of time. Because, um, it, all right, here's the actual, the actual news was that GM with Pilot Flying J and Ultimum Uh, Charge 360, uh, are developing a network of 2,000 fast chargers at up to 500 pilot and flying J travel centers. Uh, The release said that 78% of the entire population of the continental U.S. is within 10 miles of a pilot or flying J location, and that this collaboration will greatly enhance America's EV driving experience. (laughs) Um, Again, this is going to be really for cross-country or longer trips more than driving around town. And I've said it before, I'm not anti-EV. Oh, and I'm really not pro-EV, and that's coming from a guy who owns one. I'm pro-convenience. So I, 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 we will get to that EV future, but how we get there is very important. And it seems like future technology will have to come along to solve these current problems and inconveniences. But anyway, I, I thought it was uh, good and useful information. I thought it was worthwhile to have Travis here on the show, even if it was for 10 minutes or less, and talk about those issues. Uh, and uh, we'll see if they uh, will ever give me some other uh, interviews in, in the future. We'll see. Okay, during the last five years, a growing number of cities from Kansas City, Missouri to Olympia, Washington, they've all started offering free, no fare transit service. Many transit advocates have claimed that Fair, free transit will reduce greenhouse gases. In the last few months, the Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center, Rapid Transit Alliance, and the Climate Mobilization Project have each argued that free public transit would result in major reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. But just because something sounds logical doesn't mean that it is true. David Zipper, he's visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Taubman Center for State and Local Government, conducted detailed research for a recent Bloomberg article and found that free transit actually increases emissions. This is what David writes. Last February, the Regional Utah Transit Authority paused fare collection. Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall suggested that this fare-free February would accomplish two goals at once. Commemorating the 20th anniversary of Salt Lake City hosting the 2002... Winter Olympics while also reducing emissions in a region where air quality has been a long-standing concern. A few weeks ago, UTA issued a report that evaluated the month-long pilot average ridership rose sharply compared to January 16.2% during weekdays, 58.1% during Saturdays, and 32.5% on Sundays. Far more people will take transit when cost is not a barrier, Mayor Mendenhall tweeted as she shared the report. I'm so excited about the possibilities this presents to our air quality. UTA is not the only U.S. transit agency to experiment with free, fare-free transit recently. Riders can currently board the bus for free in Richmond and Alexandria, Virginia, Kansas City, Missouri, As well as on certain Boston routes. Now, local boosters generally cite goals of addressing inequality, but several, like Mendenhall, have also stressed the climate benefits of making transit free. Again, this is from David Zipper, visiting fellow at Harvard Kennedy School's Taubman Center for State and Local Government. But those claims are shaky at best, he says. After more than a decade of transit agencies around the world experimenting with free trips, it's far from clear that dropping fares delivers an environmental upside. It boils down to this. If free fare transit doesn't substantially reduce driving, it's not mitigating emissions or slowing climate change. And all signs suggest that it doesn't. It's easy to understand why one might think otherwise. Transportation is the largest source of emissions in the United States, mostly from motor vehicles, transit trips are far less polluting than driving. A study last year from the National Academies of Sciences found that a person riding transit instead of driving saves the equivalent of nine metric tons of carbon dioxide annually. In Utah, transit trips grew considerably after UTA stopped charging fares, as they have during free fare pilots everywhere. In its report, UTA, that's that Utah Transit Authority, estimated that fare-free February reduced pollution emissions by 68 tons based on an assumption that 40% of the new transit riders would have otherwise driven. Now, that figure relies on a 2019 survey, which found that 47% of UTA riders were so-called choice riders who had access to a car, but trips during free-fare February were more likely made by different riders than in 2019, when fares were charged. Data from other free fare transit programs suggests that making travel free enticed those who, during limited in, with, due to limited income, would have otherwise walked, rode a bike, or foregone the trip entirely. Such shifts would increase net emissions, not lower them. Providing enhanced mobility for those of limited means, is societally valuable, but it doesn't reduce emissions. To accomplish that, free, fair transit must win over a significant number of people who would otherwise have driven, and that's a trickier proposition. Car owners tend to be wealthier than the general public, and their access to a private vehicle makes them less willing to tolerate bus transfers, wait times, slow journeys especially to a region lacking frequent and fast bus service. Removing a $2.50 fare seems unlikely to convince many drivers to leave their keys at home. To support this hypothesis, we can look to Europe, where several cities adopted free fare transit years ago without finding evidence of subsequent mode shift from driving. Residents of the Estonian capital have been able to ride public transportation for free since 2013. Last year, Estonia's national auditor issued an assessment of that policy. It had reduced many additional transit rides, but it failed to reduce car journeys. Dunkirk, France, and parts of the Czech Republic have adopted free transit as well. There's no evidence at all that cities introducing free fare public transport have seen their car traffic reduced, said Mohamed Mezgani, the Secretary General of the International Association of Public Transport, which has published a policy brief on this topic. Most of the new people taking public transport used to walk, he says. Now, public transportation is a powerful tool to reduce transportation emissions. It's just that dropping the fares... Isn't the right approach. Again, this is coming from David Zipper, visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Taubman Center for State and Local Governments. He continues in his article in Bloomberg saying the story was similar in Santiago, Chile, where researchers randomly assigned free two week uh, transit passes to residents. Those receiving the free passes took 12% more trips overall, but they did not drive less. If the free public transportation failed to attract drivers, In relatively transit-rich Europe and in Santiago, there's little reason to think it would fare better, pun intended, in the United States where scant transit service acts as a deterrent. An extensive 2012 study by the National Academies of Sciences noted that free fare experiments undertaken in Denver in the late 1970s and in Austin in the late 1980s Failed to reduce driving, most new trips were taken by those lacking access to a car. An absence of evidence hasn't prevented many U.S. advocates, though, of free fare transit from touting its climate upside. The environmental benefits of fare free service are significant, a Montgomery County, Maryland council member wrote. In a Washington Post op-ed, the fare-free model can shift people away from cars and onto transit, a climate advocate uh, wrote in the Bay Area's Press Democrat in an editorial promoting cutting fares on Sonoma County transit buses. The Barr Foundation published a post promoting free transit as part of a climate-friendly future. Perhaps the most prominent U.S. booster of free transit is Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, who campaigned for the post last year with the promise of free to free the T to address both climate change and income equality. Three MBTA bus routes went fare free last August and data showed that ridership on the 28 line rose by almost 40 percent. Other Boston bus routes where fares were still collected also saw increases but smaller ones. A survey of riders indicated that 50 percent of riders were new But the fare-free rides replaced more biking and walking trips than driving. This is, again, David Zipper, visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Taubman Center for State and Local Governments, writing this article that uh, appeared in Bloomberg. And David says, To be sure, emission reduction is usually not the only or even the most important justification cited for fare-free transit, Equality benefits are usually mentioned first because transit riders typically have lower incomes than drivers. Reducing their expenditures represents a progressive redistribution of wealth. Even so, many transit advocates remain skeptical of equality arguments for fair, free transit. The nonprofit advocacy group Transit Center found that low-income and new riders would prefer more frequent and reliable service to a reduction in fares. I, I, I would think uh, that, that makes total sense. That said, the group's executive director, David Bragdon, does agree with fare-free advocates that public transportation is a powerful tool to reduce transportation emissions. It's just that dropping fares isn't the right approach. If you take bad American transit that costs $1.50 and make that bad service free, that won't move the needle enough to make a climate impact. Bragdon's dismissed fare-free transit as a distraction from doing the things we need to do, like converting general traffic lanes for bus rapid transit, and generally expanding transit service to make it more readily available. The key to getting people out of automobiles is providing abundant, frequent service around the clock, he said. Another way to boost transit would be to to remove long-standing subsidies for urban driving. Cities could implement decongestion pricing that forces drivers to pay for the slowdowns they impose pose on other road users or cities could start charging a market price for residential parking permits. Boston, for instance, has no fee to obtain one even for a person's third or fourth vehicle left overnight. On public streets. But local officials know that imposing new costs on drivers invites a voter backlash, as Boston Council member Mayor Wu tried unsuccessfully to introduce a fee for residential parking permits. David Zipper says there is a lesson here. Serious efforts to entice drivers to become transit riders won't come cheap. Local leaders must uh, allocate significant dollars and political capital towards expanding transit service and curtailing the preferential treatment of cars. Fare-free transit may look like a tantalizing shortcut to decarbonize urban transportation, but that image is illusionary. In mode shift as in life, you get what you paid for. David Zipper, again, is a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Taubman Center for State and Local Governments. Where he examines the interplay between urban policy and mobility technologies. I thought that was interesting, and I thought it was uh, a good article to look at about just the transit fares and and how people are willing or not willing to trade their car for transit. More people are willing to trade a train for uh get on a train rather than get on a bus. Uh, But most people would rather just drive in their own car. But as David said in this article, it's going to come down to here's what's going to happen. You're going to have cities charging uh, a lot more for parking and not have any free parking on their streets or eliminating parking altogether. They're going to have only uh, rideshare transit services. Uh, cabs, that sort of thing, uh, scooters, walking bikes in urban cores. They're going to make everybody, every driver that usually comes into a, a town, uh, just not be able to do it. They'll charge you a fee if you want to drive into the town, and they'll just charge you to cr- to like crazy, so only the ultra-rich would be able to get into and bring their car into these areas. Uh, and we're going to see, you know, it's basically the war on cars, if you will. Uh, in these urban areas where they want no cars and they only want transit and only want people riding their bikes and walking. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how all this plays out. Um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns about it, you can always uh, contact me on the uh, on the links that are in the description. The listener hotline is one of the best ways, 303-832-0217. Thanks again uh, for listening. Thanks again for being here. And until next time, I'm Jason Luper, the Traffic Guy. Be safe and, as always, happy motoring.